Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. It's your host, Sarah. And today I have a longstanding social media friend. I'm so excited to have Angela back on the podcast with me. I got connected with them, I don't know, a couple of years ago through a podcast you were hosting that was around like makeup, artistry, and maybe hair. I don't quite remember all of it, but I started listening and I was like, who is this person? I need to be their friend. And so I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast today. Um, Angela is a digital content strategist, which they will tell us what that means, and feminist copywriter. And I had no idea that there was a certification in that. So I'm super excited to hear (laughs) what that also means. Um, And Angela and I have had a lot of discussion and overlap over the last few years of like, how do we as people who are pretty impacted by mental health conditions make our work work for us and with us instead of it be something that our mental health makes it impossible for us to work when things are really hard. So today that's what we're going to be talking about. And um, Angela, I'm just so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here and it's just so good to see your face and hear your voice again. Um, also just a little qualifier. I live in the middle of the city, so you might hear a little bit of noise and I have two cats, so they might make an appearance as well. <laughs> we love the cats. My co-host Lori is obsessed with cats and right now Lori is fostering a couple little ones. And I guess mm-hmm. recently she was trying to record uh, for the podcast and the cats were like all over the place and it was impossible. So yeah, we get that. Yeah. I have a cat that has thumbs. Um, he's a polydactyl. So sometimes I'll be in a meeting and he will open cupboards. And I think just part of being uh, a cat parent is eventually like your cat's butt is going to show up on a zoom call. So it's just, it's part of, part of being a cat parent. Mm-hmm. And this new, like completely remote world that we are living in. So tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about kind of your background and how you came into this work with, I my understanding is it seems like mostly female or um, gender non-conforming queer folks in supporting them in their businesses and growing their businesses. So, but kind of start at the beginning, tell us who you are and how you got here. Yeah. Um, so my name is Angela Morris. I am a digital content strategist, feminist copywriter, and gosh, my history goes back really far. So pretty much I've been writing since I could hold a pencil. Um, but when I became an adult, I have a background in uh, sex work, and I also have a background that that came from from starting in sex work. I became a makeup artist, and I started working in the photographic medium, and then I started doing makeup for weddings and boudoir shoots and that kind of stuff. And what ended up happening was every time somebody would sit in my makeup chair they would kind of apologize for existing. So sorry, I'm fat. Sorry, I'm old. Sorry, I have a zit. Sorry, I have bags under my eyes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then kind of the next conversation that we would have when I asked them what they wanted for their makeup 
would be like, well, I can't wear red lipstick because my husband hates it. Or I read in a magazine that I can't wear glittery eyeshadow because I'm over 30 or whatever. And I had just come out of a horrifically abusive relationship. And I really felt very isolated and like I was the only one. And what I realized in doing the work that I was doing and experiencing this phenomena over and over, this pattern over and over, was like, oh, you know, I kind of had like a patriarchal relationship on steroids, but this is actually everywhere. This is actually baked into our culture and our society. And women and gender expansive folks are conditioned to apologize for their existence and to approach situations where they are vulnerable with a lot of like self-flagellation or a lot of self-deprecation. And so when I was in that space, I started having really connective, really important conversations that challenged that conditioned knee-jerk way of functioning. And I started to love that more than I loved the makeup. And I started writing about it on my account that I had for my for my makeup artistry on Instagram. And people started saying, wow, I, I really love your writing. And when the pandemic hit, I had just joined a, a feminist business cohort led by Kelly Deals, which was called is called We Are the Culture Makers. She is actually the one who teaches feminist copywriting and certifies copywriters as feminist copywriters. And the pandemic hit and I lost all of my bookings. I had just moved to Los Angeles and um, she was like, you know, I really like the way that you write and I like the way that you show up on social media. I would like to hire you as my social media manager. And because she had a large reach, this is also like for those of us who own businesses and have large reaches and want to lift up other people in our world she did the most inspiring thing, which was she leveraged her reach to build my business. So I went from going, holy shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent to, you know, having a, having a full-time social media business. And, you know, in the beginning of any industry, you're um, really, you're really learning as you go and you are kind of following what you're told to do. And luckily, because Kelly was the one who trained me how to do this, and she is a feminist, and she leads people to do business better, I learned the fundamentals of marketing a business in an ethical way that doesn't erase people. I learned that pretty early on. And then, of course, as you become more adept and things become more natural to you. You kind of carve out who you are. And so I went from being a social media manager where I was creating posts and scheduling and things to really realizing that my talent and my gift is the same as it was when I was a makeup artist, which is asking people what they want and why they're afraid to show up as themselves who is telling them they're not allowed to show up that way and really, really pressing against those barriers or those struggles that sometimes they know they have and other times they're completely unaware. 
um, so that they can show up authentically. And that includes if they have a mental illness, if they have a mental health diagnosis, um, or if they feel really vulnerable and, and intimidated by the process, because I work with people who have amazing businesses that are rooted in caring about the world and caring about doing things better and doing things differently and not causing harm. And we think of those things as, you know, supporting, supporting yourself with a business you created and caring for other people. We've been really trained to believe that they're polar opposites and they're not. So we want to, we want to join the two. Um, and I want to help people to be able to show up authentically and to be able to sustain their businesses in ways that support their mental health as well. Yeah. So I was thinking like, oh, how awesome that that's the person that introduced you to that. Right. And like empowered mm -hmm. you to bring that person centered approach. Um, so I love, I love that history. I didn't have all of that history. I, um, as I was listening to you talk about kind of the transition from doing more kind of social media management, um, into it seems like more of a kind of like coaching community building therapeutic like self-esteem mm -hmm. building role what that tells me is that the work has such a wider reach and impact right because like when mm -hmm. we empower especially marginalized people to show up as themselves to not apologize to practice self um compassion or self-acceptance or whatever term, you know, stands out to people, then they pass that on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love that domino effect. Yeah. When we model authenticity and vulnerability in the way that we show up online, the way that we market our businesses, and we do so as unapologetically as possible. And I say that with that caveat, because not apologizing can feel super, super dangerous. Um, but just, you know, doing it in a way that's as honoring of yourself as possible, it models that behavior for others. And there are even times I find myself to be a pretty confident person in terms of showing up online, showing up on camera, that kind of stuff. But there are times where I'll say something that really matters to me and I'll kind of stop and go, you know, is that the thing that's going to tank my business? Or is everybody going to think I'm crazy? Or is my client going to fire me because I, I made this hot take? Or because I talked about having a mental health diagnosis? And what I find is it does exactly the opposite. People trust me because I'm showing up as a human being. And that is the feedback that I consistently get. So it's not about not being afraid because sometimes even the most confident person is going to be afraid that who they really are is going to be their downfall in some way. But we do it anyway, as far as we feel safe. And that, I say, permission slip gives people a permission slip to do the same. Totally. You know, it's so interesting for me. And I have watched you talk about so many different things happening in 
your like micro life, but then, you know, more on a macro level and in the communities you've lived in. And I have watched and thought to myself, Ooh, people are going to be uncomfortable. Right. And like that fear for you feels so real to me because I live in that fear every day. And I know that, you know, the vast majority of my listeners are people with borderline and they understand that fear of like, if someone finds out about my diagnosis, will they still love me? Will my employer want to keep me? Will my therapist, you know, like want want to still work with me? All of those things that are so devastating because we can't change these things about ourselves. We can grow, we can build skills, we can learn how to implement them, but we cannot change these fundamental parts mm-hmm. of our identities. Yeah. And I talk to my clients a lot about let's stop fighting the brain and just figure out how to work with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The last, one of the last uh, 40 hour a week jobs that I had working for, for another person was I worked in a salon spa in Minneapolis And what's really interesting about this is that the founder's origin story um, is that he was, he was a protege of a really prolific uh, hairstylist that came from Minneapolis and he had this salon and he had this clientele and he had a client come in who, who used to come in every six weeks, but she had inexplicably come in on the third week or whatever. And he styled her hair and they laughed and everything. And then a week later, he gets a phone call or a letter from the client's sister saying, you know, she was really depressed. She was planning on ending her life. And she actually came to you because she uh, was getting her hair styled like for her funeral in her mind. That was what she was doing. And um, essentially, he founded this business off of this idea and continuously perpetuated this idea that because he had made her day, she decided to live. And so everyone in the company was supposed to be a day maker and we were supposed to make everybody's day. And every single person that worked at the reception desk was on anti-anxiety meds, all of us. There were people who were drinking themselves to sleep there were people who were self-injuring. It was it was this hotbed of anxiety and self-doubt. And it was kind of an abusive situation because it was our job to give ourselves to a client to help make their day. And the pressure was so monumental because we had just constantly been told this story of, you know, how you treat a client could, could, you know, it could be a matter of life or death. So that's a ton of pressure. And then, you know, working there, like I'm a neurodivergent person. I was um, kind of new in my uh, recovery from an abusive relationship. I was very symptomatic in terms of PTSD. And I was trying so hard to fight my brain. And I was trying to hide what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing. And that resulted in a lot of like 
panic attacks in the stock room and a lot of having to go home early. And there was also a lot of gossip because I was pretty bad at hiding it, I guess. I thought I was good at hiding it. Um, And I remember I would start to feel a panic attack or an anxiety attack come on. And the first thing that I would think is stop, stop panicking, stop it, stop it. You're going to lose your job. And I ended up getting fired from that job anyway. And it was the most liberating thing (laughs) that ever happened to me. And um, I had known it was coming. So I had been documenting lots of stuff. And yeah, I was brought in the back room one day and they said, today is your last day working here. And I said, why am I being fired? And they told me a BS reason. And I said, that's not the reason I was fired. And I'm not going to sign any termination paperwork, but I will take a copy of it because I'm going to sue you. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that insistence that we behave a certain way and fight against our brain so that we can support the needs of somebody else's business and to sacrifice ourselves for the pleasure or the well-being, I guess, of other people for money. It was just, that was such a stark example for me. And um, from leaving that place, I started my own business. And I have to say that it was a one of the best days of my life. When I walked out and I didn't know how I was going to pay rent, didn't know how I was going to make money, but I knew I never had to come back there again. I actually thanked my boss. I said, I feel like there's a physical weight that came off of my shoulders. Um, But I also wish I could go back and tell myself, you're not broken. This place is broken. This place is capitalizing on the suffering of folks with mental health diagnoses in a plethora of ways from this weird origin story that may or may not be true to the way that the whole business functions to the way that we're kind of pitted against each other and gossip about each other when we're showing signs of distress from a high pressure job. Um, I would tell that person to, I, I would tell the past version of me to approach that work very differently. Um, but I also have the privilege of being able to, you know, I knew a trade and um, some people don't. I was incredibly privileged to start my own business and and be able to fumble my way through it and to have the support of people around me who were encouraging me. And when I meet a lot of small business owners who are really needing some support whether they are incredibly educated and affluent or they're bootstrapping their business and they're thinking pretty small because they haven't ever been told that they can think bigger or that they could sustain themselves on their business. There is so much of a support and connection element that goes along with that because um, mental health is heavily stigmatized and that happens regardless of your socioeconomic status but it's just where you are 
kind of on the marginalization chart that impacts your ability to like function within the system and your ability to be transparent about it. You know, I'm a conventionally attractive white, um, thin bodied, you know, English as a first language, like femme presenting person. So me being bold and showing up and talking about mental illness has a whole lot less risk than somebody who does not have those privileges. Yeah, absolutely. I I have so many thoughts about this, but I just, I want to go back and touch on the origin story. I've heard this story before, but you know, as is life, every time we hear something, we hear it from a different perspective. Right. And so, um, the thing that is standing out to me today that, you know, a couple of years ago when I first heard that story, I don't know that it stood out was, um, the difference between serving others and being in service of people. And when mm-hmm. I say that, I mean, like, he absolutely built this business on this capitalistic kind of idea of if we make someone feel good today, it could change the entire course of their life mm-hmm. and completely disregards personal autonomy, right? Of like, mm-hmm we may make this person feel good for a moment, but what they choose to do with that is up to them. Absolutely. Like, and yeah. I talk about this in therapy a lot. It's like, listen, you can come to therapy and I'm stoked. It's going to be fun to see you once a week or every other week, but you coming to therapy isn't going to do anything for you unless you apply the things we talk about in between our sessions. Just right. talking to me could actually make things worse if you don't, apply the things mm-hmm. that we uncover and yeah. I it's such an interesting world where we're all like especially in the states we're all like excited to sue people which in your case was an appropriate lawsuit right but I know mm-hmm. so many big corporations are constantly suing people and it's not appropriate and it's like we're missing this piece of personal accountability mm-hmm. yep Exactly. Well, and I'm glad that you brought that up because the story that I shared about that um, salon spa owner is a really oversimplified, emotionally bypassy way of conveying something that that I'm sure he had really good intentions. And then I'm sure after he made a lot of money and had a lot of power by leading, you know, all of these people, no one was going to say, Hey, you know, I'm a $15 an hour employee. And I think the way that you're doing stuff is problematic. No one was going to say that to him. (laughs) Um, But, or be like, yo, my guy, you should really check your savior complex. Yeah. Why do you think you're going to save someone? Right. Right. You know, and and the thing is is we do have the ability with our work to change people's lives for the better and to give them a sense of hope that allows them to carry on however if that client who came into his salon had chosen to end her life it would not have been his fault and he kind of failed to tell 
the people that uh, were working for him or that heard his message, that part of the equation. Um, so I think that's an extreme example, but in the cultural climate that we're living in, especially on Instagram, there is this, um, there's kind of this unspoken covert messaging being, being internalized, which is, it's my job to save the world or it starts with me or it's all on me. And if something bad happens as a result of my actions, um, I want to be accountable. And I think for some people, especially those of us who have mental health diagnoses that cause us to see things in black and white, that can really cause a spiral. And so understanding the balance between, yes, I am responsible for what I say and what I do, and other people are responsible for what they say and do. And we largely don't have control of all of the systems and all of the things that are at play um, that have this kind of butterfly effect on, on the world. And another thing I think related to that is we've really heard these horror stories over the last 20 years of somebody said or did something wrong on the internet and it ruined their life. And so I think a lot of folks are really scared to get vulnerable and to talk about their real lives because that's the backdrop. The backdrop is if you say or do one thing that somebody else perceives negatively, you're never going to recover from this. And it can make you feel like all eyes are on you when in reality, there probably aren't very many eyes on you. And then the flip side of that is I got to make content. I've got to be visible. I've got to, you know, find my niche and I've got to, you know, there's all these things about modern marketing that we're taught. And so, you know, when you're doing all of those things, following all those rules and, and walking out all of those steps and nobody sees your stuff or nobody's engaging with you. It's like, we are on this, especially when I think of folks with borderline, that pendulum swing of, Oh my God, everybody's staring at me and there's so much pressure and I have to be perfect. And I'm all alone. I'm screaming into a void. Nobody cares about me. And that just goes back and forth and back and forth with um, folks who have mental health diagnoses and they are running businesses and they're trying to do it in a way that is aligned with their values. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear about how you're helping people do that. I want to say too, this is an interesting perspective and I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on it. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I feel as if I had a very strange experience where, and again, I have so much privilege, right? Mm -hmm. I almost feel like all of my problematic mental health symptoms were overlooked and allowed for mm -hmm. as inappropriate as they were because I was a high producing 
person. And that was a huge disservice to me. So an example of this is I started as a case manager for the state of Washington when I was 20 years old, super inappropriate. I absolutely should have been, you know, working at Macy's part-time and like, you know, drinking with my friends on the weekend, but Mm -hmm. many of us grow up too fast because that's how we deal with our trauma. So I had a caseload of maybe a hundred people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who I was responsible for maintaining housing and services for, and all of these things. I was working in a program that had a lot of eyes on it because the state of Washington was in kind of a litigation with the feds around not properly administering services. And so the Mm -hmm. feds were going to pull our funding if we didn't do it correctly. And so Mm -hmm. what the feds do in these cases is they actually give you a shitload more funding so that you can figure the program out. Mm -hmm. And that's how I was hired. And so I was operating in this like very high pressure, newly funded program where people hadn't been doing anything for many years. Mm. And I'm 20, energized, passionate, borderline. And I'm like, I'm going to rock and roll. So I was the first person across the state to get these devices and these programs set up for some clients. And, you know, it goes out in a state newsletter. And then I'm all, I was like, the attention that was put on me as an example for other case managers was a tool for, you know, the central office to say, this is what it could look like or whatever. Mm As a result of that, people let me do things that were incredibly inappropriate and I never once got talked to. Like I hung up on a a physical therapist and I, in Cube City, a hundred cubicles of people around me, I slammed the phone down and I said, what a fucking cunt Mm -hmm. in the middle of the office. Mm -hmm. And I told a program manager from... Olympia, who was writing policy and procedure, that I thought something was bullshit in the middle of a all state meeting. And Mm -hmm. all of these things that are absolutely not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I never once got talked to about you cannot continue doing this. And if you do, we cannot maintain our employment. We have to build a plan for you to be more effective. And nobody ever said to me, Sarah, why do you think you have a hard time taking a moment to think about what you're going to say? If someone had said to me, Sarah, I think there's some impulsivity. I think you're not managing your excitement very well. We can do all the same things you're doing, but in a more effective way. Let's figure out how to do that together. Could have had a huge opportunity for growth, but basically my like unmanaged borderline, unmanaged ADHD was just allowed for because I was doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because working in the social media sphere, and even we see that in politics, we see that in media now. Um, I am, am just so, so glad you brought that up because first of all, for folks who are aware that they have a mental health diagnosis and they either own their own business or they are in a position like you were in where they're they're working um and there's there is pressure on them to perform there is this implicit pressure um or covert pressure i have to be extraordinary because if i'm extraordinary 
then people will love and appreciate me despite this. The other thing, which is what you're speaking to a lot, is um, we as a culture, we as a society are willing to overlook really, really damaging behaviors because that person performs for us, either in a financial or monetary way, or they perform for us literally, they are a performer. Um, So you see the Andrew Tates of the world, and you see the Joe Rogans of the world, and you see the Tucker Carlson's of the world and the Donald Trump's of the world. I understand your um, listener base might have some varying degrees of, of politics and things. Um, I got to believe the vast majority of us fall into <laughs> one corner though. <laughs> I, 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 I totally get that. I just, I don't want to exclude anybody from the conversation because this is an important one. Um, But we see those um, flagrant, abusive behaviors and statements and this lack of impulse control. And we see see our culture moving really into um, an attention economy where attention at all costs. Attention is good regardless of how it it came to pass. And what you said about not not being pulled aside like hey this is not okay because you were doing something that make that made your organization look good or made um the people that uh, work around you look good. We are seeing that really entering the sphere of owning a business, gaining visibility, going viral. You know, I have people that come to me all the time and they're like, I want to go viral or I want more followers. And I have to say, why do you want that? And they kind of look at me like a deer in headlights. And then I say, okay, how many is enough? And they don't have an answer for that either because it's just let's get in front of many eyes, as many eyes as possible. And then we're somebody and then we matter. And then, like you said, the things about us that maybe we're not proud of or the things that we haven't addressed yet, we don't have to worry about them because everybody knows our name. Um, my partner has sort of a morbid obsession with this, like, I don't know, I guess you'd call them a rap duo in Miami. They're called the Island Boys. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yes. They had a song that went very, very viral. Didn't they? Yes. 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 What song was it? I think it's just called Island Boys. Okay. (laughs) They're just kind of singing about themselves. Um, but they are absolutely ridiculous. And what my partner's fascination with them is, is he says they just have a complete lack of self-awareness. They have a ton of attention and they're kind of being ridiculed because they're so over the top ridiculous. And there doesn't seem to be any register 
that people don't like them for the right reasons. And we were kind of talking about 15, 20 years ago, like when Jackass was popular, when like Steve-O and Johnny Knoxville were popular, um, or Bam Margera. There's probably like some 20-year-old listening. They have no idea. (laughs) I've been following the Bam Margera stuff like so heavy lately. My guy is in deep, deep He's in deep trouble. Oh, yeah. Um, I talked to a, a... a new teenager on my case the other day that didn't know what a fax was. And I had to explain what a fax was. And I was like, it's kind of like an email, but it goes from a printing machine to a printing machine. And if the phone numbers don't work well, it won't send. And it will. And my teenager was like, what? And I was like, oh, Sarah, here we are. Yeah. But like the Logan Pauls, right? Like, I think he's, he's a good example of a Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you look at kind of like I'm 40 years old. So when you look at kind of like the, let's just call them the young dumbasses of my generation that got famous, they were aware that what they were doing was ridiculous. They had an awareness of this is like zany and wacky and this is an act and this maybe isn't who we really are. And maybe some of them have kind of lost their way um, over the years because the persona overtakes who they actually are. Um, but what we're seeing is a lot of insistence that every person can be a star. Every person can be extraordinary and can be a household name. They just have to gather enough observers or gather enough admirers. And the slope becomes very slippery of what they're willing to do to do that. And if they have enough people that like them, those people are going to rally for them and defend them when they do something that's really troubling. Um, So we're seeing that not just in office cubicles anymore. We're actually seeing that really in the public sphere. So that's why we're able to see people really struggling and really having a hard time and it's visible and it's public and sort of the narrative is if you are a fan of that person, if you admire their work or if you feel a parasocial connection to them, you have to defend them and you have to defend or explain or shrug off their actions. And um, so I work with folks who are trying to figure out how do I show up? How do I show up as a a business owner? How do I sustain myself on this business? How do I market myself? And where's the line between sharing my real life and sharing what I actually care about and what means the most to me and trying to get people to care about it in an online space where the bigger the piece of shit you are (laughs) or the more harm you cause or the more controversy or the more people are arguing about you, the more you matter. And that can be really overwhelming and really stressful on somebody who 
they can't work in a cubicle. They can't work in an office. They know that they need to be an entrepreneur. They know that they're happiest being a business owner that kind of leads things and run, runs things. Um, but feeling a disconnect between, oh my God, I know that what I do is valuable and important, but what if nobody else feels that way? What if nobody else thinks that way? What if people get mad at me? What if they hate me? What if they argue with me? What if they cancel me? Um, that's kind of present for everybody, but it's especially present for people that really struggle with their connection to lovability. There's this sense when you are a person with a mental health diagnosis that your lovability is always teetering. And if you make any misstep, it's over. So there's a lot of proving and there's a lot of masking and there's a lot of denying of the self and deferring to what other people are doing as a mark of what you should be doing. And in the world, especially right now, there are a lot of bad examples. And there's also, you know, when we're talking about any any diagnosis or 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 person really um that has has a likelihood of kind of grandiosity you know if you're bipolar and you're in a and you know you're experiencing mania and you're seeing somebody just spout off really impulsively and saying a lot of really hurtful things it can kind of sometimes have a powerful effect. It can, you know, really speak into that feeling of inv invincibility. And um, there are a lot of people that are feeling that desire to feel powerful. And the examples that are out there um, can really, really affect folks that um, that are trying to manage their mental health as best as they can. Totally. I have to imagine that's really going to resonate with our listeners being heavily, um, uh, you know, people experiencing borderline and kind of adjacent symptoms of how do I maintain the feeling of being loved and doing it at any cost. Um, mm -hmm. I want to be super respectful of your time, but I, I, if you have a little bit more, if you're willing to just kind of I don't want you to share the, you know, secrets of your trade and your work because <laughs> um, that's privileged work, right? I mean, like you're yeah. doing important work and and um, people need to be paying you for that work. But what kind of advice do you have for people who have a mental health disorder, who have a strong um, idea, product or business kind of um, mm -hmm. uh thoughts running through their head. And I know a lot of our borderline folks do because we're so creative and passionate and also know the traditional line divide doesn't work for me to be well. What advice do you have or guidance or tools um, do you have for them in their kind of journey, wherever, wherever you want to start any, anywhere on that spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually think I'm really transparent about everything I do. I don't think there's really any like secrets or tricks or trades, but I appreciate you respecting that. Um, 
I think really where my magic comes in is the way that I support people and listen to people and take the words that they say and use that to create their copy and their content um, so that we can we can strike that balance between your person and your business owner and we're speaking to an audience. Um, so what I would say is that if you are a person with a mental health diagnosis that owns a business and is marketing yourself on social media or anywhere in the online sphere, and you feel that it is harming you or that occasionally it can cause you to spiral, um, of course, the first thing I'm going to say is limit your contact with social media. Um, And that doesn't mean to, you know, uh, get into get into a, a cycle with it or anything like that. It just means have a plan for how you're going to show up and when and how often. And I also encourage folks to take breaks from social media. And in fact, that is something that I model that pretty much every online social media guru tells you, do not do that. Do not ghost your audience. Do not post and ghost. I do it all the time. And there are times that I take month-long breaks. I take three-month-long breaks. Um, When you do that, if you are a person who has a lot of online friendships, what I think is a really helpful thing to do is to let those close internet friends or internet colleagues let them know that you're planning to take a break and let them know ways that they can stay in contact with you for the sake of supporting you, not for the sake of being able to like bug you for business stuff, but like, Hey, Sarah, I'm really feeling like social media for my business is making me really depressed and really anxious. And I'm starting to get into fights and comment sections. So I'm going to leave for a week. Can I give you my phone number and can you check in with me like in a couple days? Can you check in with me once a week and just see how I'm doing? Or, you know, I'm really afraid that if I'm not online, that people are going to forget about me and I'm going to disappear. So can you just check in on me and just let me know you still care about me, even if I'm not creating content? or even if I'm not on your most convenient social media platform, that is a really good act of care for yourself. And it's telling other people that you're connected with online, you are valuable to me. And I want to continue to have a connection and a relationship with you, even if it's not here. So that is maybe something to get into practice with. I understand some people might not feel like confident with doing that, but see how that practice feels for you. See how it feels to be like, oh my gosh, like I need a break from this. And my fear is that if I leave this, I'm going to be all alone. And how can I challenge that? How can I engage in that opposite action of, I want to isolate and I want to withdraw but um, I want to know that I'm loved and cared about and I don't want to be abandoned just because I'm taking care of my mental health. Um, 
The other thing is find ways to market your business that are not on social media. So get into a group program, uh, get into a networking group, get a hobby that has nothing to do with your work, but is like identity adjacent. Um, So if you are a queer person, or if you are a woman, or if you are, um, you know, whatever, if you're a roller skater, (laughs) get involved in something that is for your enjoyment, where you're around other people that enjoy that, because you will make connections and friendships by default that also have a weird way of supporting your business. Because like genuine connection, genuine friendships are your greatest ally when when you have a business and when you're a person with a mental health diagnosis. Um, the last thing that I will say is that if social media is really harming you. I have an offer that I actually crafted for a client of mine who was experiencing really severe uh, mental health consequences as a result of showing up online constantly, trying to be an influencer. Um, And it is called Quiet Quitting Instagram. So basically what I do is I help you to set up your Instagram account kind of like a homepage on a website so that if someone goes to your Instagram, they know who you are, what you do, why it's important to you, who you serve, what your offers are, and how to connect with you off of social media. And what's really great about Quiet Quitting Instagram is I say you can peace out, pause, or pivot. So if you want to like leave for good, you can go ahead and do that. Or if you just want to take a break but you want to have something that's a placeholder so people can find you, you can do that. Or if you need some time to pivot and to think about, hey, is the work that I'm doing actually supporting my mental health? Is it harming me? Um, Do I maybe want to change my business model? Or do I maybe want to take a break from doing this work so that I can take care of myself? And when I come back, I want to approach the way that I market my business online much differently, you have the option to do that too. So it creates more flexibility, less rigidity, and it really takes the pressure off of folks who um, are realizing that they need to prioritize their mental health. Yeah, I've been seeing so much about that language, quiet quitting Instagram. And I hadn't, I had kind of an understanding, but not like a clear, like that idea of making Instagram kind of like a web page is so cool to me. Um, like, because let's be honest, not a lot of businesses need a web page anymore, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so like still being there, but not having to be giving the ins and outs of your day-to-day or even the day-to-day of your business, I think is so cool. Um, and I I really want to um, reiterate the community aspect as well, because like, if I were ever in need of any content strategy, right, I would absolutely just come right to you. No question. I wouldn't even need, like, I don't even know what you do, Right. Like, I know what you do, but I don't know what your specific offerings are. I don't know how it works. But like, Mm -hmm. we've been in community for so long that Mm -hmm. I know I would just come to you. And I also know that like, if I needed something specific, I would be like, do you know of anyone? Right. Absolutely. That that, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, networking piece is so valuable. 
Yeah, when you have real connection with people beyond trying to get them to buy your things, um, you have a trusted ally. You have a trusted advocate. So yeah, Sarah, if you were to come to me and say, I need help with social media, but I don't know what I need help with. And we sat down and talked about it. And I was like, Sarah, I really think you need this, but I don't do that. You're going to be able to trust that I'm not just trying to get a sale from you. Um, and you're going to trust that I'm going to advocate for you in my network and say, you know what? I don't do that, but I know somebody who, who does, or I will find someone for you who does. Um, the community building aspect of Instagram is still relevant. It is still real. It's just really like trying to find a diamond in a landfill, And so finding your people, finding the real people that you actually connect with and that you care about beyond, you know, trying to get put on or trying to get customers or clients or people to buy your stuff. It's a long game, but it's so much more supportive, A, of your business and B, of you as a human being. Um, Because when we go to the online space, Um, It can be really easily to be, it can be very easy to be jostled back and forth between, oh, I'm getting so much attention and everybody likes what I'm doing. Therefore, they must like me. And, oh my God, I feel so alone here. And I feel like nobody gets me. And I feel like what I'm seeing here, all these idealized versions of other people, and I'm not like that. So I must be the only one going through my experience. So really you know, seeing the vastness, seeing the possibility in the vastness, and also understanding that we as human beings were really only meant to have, you know, relationships with like less than 100 people. (laughs) And so find the people that you actually genuinely like as human beings, and that you know, have your back and develop the practice of asking for help and of communicating what's going on, maybe not publicly, but in a DM with someone saying, Hey, listen, I'm really struggling. And, um, you know, I know we, we only chat here, but I need to take a break from this. And I want to maintain a connection to you because you're one of my people. You're one of my FPs. (laughs) And, um, I think when we, when we release the, the sense of shame or the sense of, uh, intimidation and we continuously experience people saying, yeah, of course I'll show up for you. Of course I care about you. Of course I'll check on you. People are actually, um, they'll surprise you with how frequently they will say yes to those invitations. And, and those are really, really valuable parts of maintaining those connections. And I'm so glad you're one of those in my life. You're one of those people for me. I know. And I can say that I have seen you quiet quit or take breaks and I have never worried because I know and trust that if you're not active on social, you're doing your thing and taking care of yourself. And we have connected outside of Instagram. And so like, if we had never said that to each other of like, shit is hard, I'm going to go take care of me, but here's how you can get in touch with me. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, Angela was like, you know, gone from Instagram for a month. I might be like, oh my God, is my friend okay? What's happening? I don't know how to get Mm -hmm. in touch with them. 
but like, I've seen that work. And so whenever you're gone, I don't think anything of it. And then when you pop up, I'm like, Oh, my friend, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I I think it really models too, that like, you know, if you, if you take a break, nobody's going to forget about you. Nobody's going to abandon you. Your value is not going to tank. Your business is not going to fail. Um, above all, what is most important is you and taking care of yourself. And if you're not taking care of yourself, your business and your relationships and every single aspect of your life is going to be negatively impacted by the removal of yourself. You are you are the linchpin in your business. You are the linchpin in your friendships, in your intimate relationships, in your therapeutic process, in your healing journey. You are the nucleus and the most important part of that. And when you sacrifice yourself or deny yourself or ignore yourself, um, none of those other things can be supportive. If your mental health isn't quote unquote working, nothing else works and it requires your focus and attention on that. Um, and we're really capitalism teaches us the opposite. Um, and also teaches us that showing up with authenticity, authenticity and vulnerability, um, is, um, is counter to being able to support ourselves. And I really, really hope that with the work that I do and with the work that others are doing, um, that we can dismantle that and we can refuse that and we can radically create new pathways so that folks with mental illness who are brilliant and creative and incredible at what they do can understand that, yes, you can be yourself and also it's not a negotiable. You have to be yourself because we're actually here for you. Yeah. Oh. Every time I talk to you, I'm so energized. I could just keep going forever and ever, but we went past our time. So my friend, I just adore you. And I love seeing you at a place in your life where it seems like you are settled. It seems like you are like breathing. It seems like you feel very clear about what you're doing and mm-hmm. um, and the path that you're on, but also the compassion to pivot, right? Mm-hmm. And like to not have to stay on that same path. And I just think that that's... It's just, I'm in awe of it. So thank you for your time. And um, where can people find you if they want to connect? Um, you can go to my website at AngelaMorrisMedia.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at AngelaMorrisMedia, all one word. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.